Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Thank you for joining the conversation on Colloquium. This episode is brought to you by Excelsior Capital, an investment platform focused on democratizing private equity by providing individuals access to direct opportunities. To learn more about the firm, please visit excelsiorgp.com and connect with Brian on LinkedIn. Hello and welcome to the conversation on Colloquium. Today, I'm excited to have a fellow NESCAC grad, it's always fun for me to say that, Chris Cerrone with Ocri Capital Management. We met through a mutual friend, Devin, who, who's on your team, who I've known for a couple of years, and I'm excited to, to go ahead and do this. Uh, Chris, if you could give us a little bit of background on yourself and then also the firm. Great. Well, Brian, it's, it's awesome to be on with you, uh, so thank you for the invitation. The, the, the quick background on me is um, I'm a partner and a portfolio manager at Ocri Capital Management. Uh, I joined the firm in 2012, so just coming up on nine years now, which is pretty incredible to think about. Uh, when I started at the firm, I was only 24, and our firm's founder, Chuck Ocri, really took me under his wing and has mentored me uh, both as an investor and in life as I was maturing over those nine years and has taught me a tremendous amount. And uh, we as a firm have grown over the years. Um, Ocri Capital Management is now a 15 or $16 billion asset under management investment management firm. We're based in Middleburg, Virginia. We have a team of uh, 13 people. So very, very small, efficient, familial group. Uh, Middleburg, Virginia, for those who haven't been here or heard of uh, here is about an hour west of Washington. Uh, we like to say the town has one traffic light, so that keeps things a lot simpler. The uh, the population of horses probably outnumbers the uh, the number of people around here, and so we're we're both geographically and philosophically pretty far removed from the traditional sort of Wall Street, which was my background uh, originally. I came 
uh, here from New York City, where I was an analyst at Goldman Sachs. Just a little bit more about the firm. We were founded in 1989, so the firm is now 32 years old uh, by Chuck. Back then, at the very beginning, he wrote a letter to some of our clients, and in that letter, he defined what Nirvana was uh, as an investor to him. And it was really three criteria. The first was exceptional businesses generating above average returns on capital or returns on owners' earnings, honest and skillful managers who treat the shareholders like partners, even though often they don't know us individually, and a reinvestment opportunity and track record and runway. And all these years later, we really still live uh, and invest by those three tenants. We call it the three-legged stool. Uh, so it's pretty remarkable just how little has changed over those 30 years. The the philosophy has certainly stood the uh, test of time. What we do on a daily basis is we manage a highly concentrated portfolio of what we think are just exceptional businesses. And the thing that drives us to get up in the morning is to look for for quality, looking for businesses that have durable competitive advantages, that have managers who are aligned with us. Like I said, it's a it's a concentrated strategy and it's a really low turnover strategy. So we can take our time, get to know these businesses really well. Uh, when we invest with them, hold on for a long period of time and, and build relationships. And so it's it's an and we do it in this idyllic setting. So it's a it's a pretty good deal all around, I'd say. Yeah, it sounds like a, a great gig and the right way to think about investing. So I want to unpack that a little bit more. You said highly concentrated quality companies. These are all domestic publicly traded names. Is, is that right? We, we, so we have a mandate. We can go global. Um, we have a few strategies. Depending on the strategy, there are different uh, restrictions and limitations on that. Uh, we're able to invest up to 15% of assets outside the United States. And we do have a number of uh, businesses that are either located in Canada or Europe at this point. But by and large, it's a, it's a U.S. domiciled fund, although nearly all of our businesses have global operations of some kind. And in terms of concentration, I know you have different buckets of capital and, and probably separately managed accounts, et cetera, but how many names are we talking? How many positions do you typically have at a time? So depending on the platform, the, the most concentrated of our platforms, uh, it can be as few as 10 holdings. Um, for the mutual fund, which is our most of our diversified platform, uh, right now it's in the low 20s. It's been as high as the mid 30s, but it's 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 really the the top 10 names tend to account for 60 to 70 percent of the assets, and our largest positions are routinely above 10 percent individually. Are you industry and sector agnostic? You go wherever the the quality takes you. Exactly. So the the goal is to build a portfolio of the of the highest quality businesses we can find. And so when we look at our portfolio appraisal sheet every morning, um, a lot of times firms will organize that by sector, GICs sector, or so you'll have your consumer and your financials and your energy businesses. Uh, for us, it's just an alphabetical order. So we don't think about those those sector classifications at all. Uh, there are certainly ponds that we fish in. Uh, where we think you're more likely to find some of that quality. And then there are ponds where we're just a lot less likely to fish. So for example, uh, payments and technology businesses, 
um, are featured pretty prominently in the portfolio. Uh, we've been investors in retail over a lot of years and have, have generally uh, found some exceptional retailers. That's, a, that's an execution intensive business, but if you find the right teams and the right models, you can, you can compound really nicely over time. And then conversely, we really haven't had much exposure at all to uh, materials or energy, very limited exposure to healthcare. Within the realm of financials, we're not typically interested in interest rate sensitive financial businesses, banks, uh, really looking more on sort of the, the, the asset light side of that. And so that's, that's how we think about uh, sector alignments. And given the, the small team and the longevity of the fund and some of the research that you shared with me, your thought piece um, that I want to get into, culture seems to be a really big part of what you all do in terms of long-term hold, finding these kind of high quality, but low name businesses. Uh, I mean, um, high quality, but, but low kind of volume amount of businesses that you're investing in. And this power of compounding is something that, that you talk a lot about in this, in this research piece, which is terrific. I encourage anyone to reach out. It's called the art of not selling, um, which I know we have some limitations on being able to distribute, but um, if you have the chance to read it, it's worth your time. Maybe go into how that culture that, that Chuck started plays into this, this concept of the art of not selling. I think it's a, it's a, it's a great question because I, I think ethos and culture and this idea of compounding have to go together. There's a transaction-oriented culture that surrounds our business. Wall Street makes money based on transactions. That's, that's the bottom line there. And it's really difficult as an investor, a lot of times, to sit back and not have activity, even though the lack of activity is in and of itself a decision and an important decision and one that you have to make every day. Uh, and so what we've done with our firm is we have a very small investment team. There are five of us, Chuck, uh, my partner, John, and we have two associates, Andrew Millette and Trey Tickner. And this small group of people understands that the way that we val add value every day for our clients uh, really has nothing to do with whether or not we get a name into the portfolio on that given day, uh, whether or not we're buying or selling something. Um, and it really all just goes back to that, that long-term patience and discipline around allowing the power of compounding to do its magic. And it's not for everybody. I can tell you, you know, the, 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 the typical hedge fund, they're just a lot more active daily than we are. And that appeals to some people. And, and for us, we sort of, there's a great quote, John Train said, develop a congenial investment strategy and stick to it. So for us, this fits our personalities. And we've all opted to live out here in Middleburg, which I think fits into it as well. And I think, uh, you know, it's, it's interesting. I, I say to people that with Chuck, it's probably more difficult to convince him to sell something than it is to convince them to buy something new for the portfolio. Actually, it's not probably, it absolutely is the case that it's far more difficult, that he, you will get far more pushback from him when you're discussing parting ways with something that we think is an exceptional business, whether because we think that maybe it's a little less exceptional, maybe there's been a change in the management team, maybe the growth, rate, growth rates look like they're going to slow going forward, Maybe, you know, and we can talk about it. Valuation absolutely is, is not a part of our sell strategy. 
those are those are really difficult conversations, and you have to be really careful uh, when you part ways with with those great businesses. And and you have to build a culture around that discipline because it's hard. It's really really hard. I think it's one of the most difficult things we do as investors is getting that sell decision right. So let's let's get into it. You do name three things that historically the Wall Street media signals quite a lot, focuses on quite a bit, which are politics, the economy, and valuation. Uh-huh. You kind of become inundated with these, you know, type of uh, messages from Bloomberg and the Journal and the Times and wherever. And you really don't take any of those into direct account on your your daily investment considerations. Could you maybe go through them piece by piece, starting with politics, then onto the economy and valuation, how you think about their impact on your portfolio? You know, we're we're just down the road from Washington, D.C., so so we're we're keenly aware of what happens um, over there. And in our community, there are a lot of people who are involved in government. And so we see it firsthand. There, it, well, one of the things I think one of the best things we can do um, to avoid allowing that to affect our investment decision making process um, is to own durable all weather businesses. If we owned businesses that, for example, were highly sensitive to changes in Medicare reimbursement rates, we would be forced to pay very close attention to what was going on in Washington. Uh, if we owned businesses that would be dramatically impacted, and there are some exceptional businesses out there, by the way, that, that fall into this category, that if the United States were to go the way of, of the UK with a single payer system, that those businesses would be completely upended. I would be worrying daily about the new Biden administration's health care plans. But we just we, we work really hard to stay away from businesses that, that have that sort of political sensitivity. And so then, yes, of course, every business in the economy is going to be impacted by the really big picture items like, the you know, over time, the indebtedness of the economy and what kind of an impact might that have on inflation. That could be profound impactful to every business that we own. And I think, you know, it's something you have to think about, but it's, it's, that's a, that's a different conversation than tuning into congressional subcommittee hearings to try to gauge the direction of, of, of regulation. And so thank God we, we, we just don't go there from a, from a macro point of view, from an economic point of view, the answer is really similar. And that's that when we buy these all-weather businesses, we're looking for secular tailwinds, these, these, to have the wind at your back, regardless of the macro climate. And so there are a lot of businesses that we own through the pandemic that we just experienced and the related economic difficulty that have continued to do just as well. And, and some have done quite a bit better as a result of that. We don't really invest in businesses uh, that have high degrees of economic cyclicality or have a lot of exposure to commodity or or currency fluctuations. So that, again, allows us to sort of uh, sit back and and tune out some of that noise. And then then the third one is is probably the most interesting and and certainly the most controversial, at least from the, the conversations that we've had, which is we don't sell businesses on the basis of valuation. And people will look at us and say, well, how on earth does that make any sense? 
And there, there are a few reasons why we've arrived at that. And, and, and look, this isn't the, the, this isn't the only way to do it. This is just the way that we've chosen to do it. So first of all, a lot of these exceptional businesses will continue to exceed your expectations. And so what you think might look like an expensive valuation today very possibly will look very reasonable in a few years once these, uh, these managers have proven what they're capable of doing. And there's nothing worse than underestimating your management teams, moving on from the business, and then watching them do terrific things, and you're not there to participate. I mean, that, that hurts. Uh, I can tell you from experience, that really hurts. The other thing is, is these businesses are really hard to come by. And so if you could trade out of one and into another and, and they, were, they were commodities, sure, why not? When one gets expensive, trade into one that's, that's cheaper. But because there are so few, I wrote in that piece that maybe there are 100 businesses that we're aware of that, that would be suitable candidates for the portfolio at some price. And at any given point in time, only a couple of them might be actionable based on their valuations, because these businesses tend to be quite richly valued because people appreciate for them for what they are. It makes it so that when you trade out of it, there's, there's really nothing else to trade into um, on a regular basis, not to mention the frictional costs and the tax that are incurred. And, and those are all the enemies of compounding as well. And so, so that's, I'll, I'll leave it there, but touching on those three, that, that's sort of the high level way we think about that. And I want to use this as a way to segue into this concept of compounding. Whether it's a misquote or not, Einstein has said that it was the eighth one of the world. And you have some incredible math. I don't know, they're riddles or just kind of processes that you put in this paper that really do uh, stun the mind. Maybe talk about how you all think of the power of compounding and you overlay that on top of this investment thesis and culture that you just expounded upon. You know, compound returns are maybe the most powerful force in the universe. I've heard it described that way. You know, Chuck says to us a lot of times, you really don't get it until you experience it firsthand. And I've, you know, as, as I think one of the reasons why investors get better, the more they do it, they, there's certainly pattern recognition. But I think there's, there's a firsthand experience with the power of compounding over time starts to have a profound impact on your thinking and your decision-making. And it's, and it's because it's nonlinear and, and nonlinear ideas are, are difficult to grasp. Exponential functions are just naturally hard for us to, to wrap our heads around. And so, you know, the, the, the riddle that, that we sometimes will say is, and, and for your, your audience, they can, they can play along here and, and we'll just run through it, is you're given the choice between two sums of money. You can either have a million dollars today or a penny. Uh, that will double every day for 30 days, and you can and you can choose either one. I like to give a couple hints. The first hint is that the penny that doubles daily is worth a dollar and 28 cents after that first week, and after the second week, it's worth just a little over 163 dollars. So then, sometimes I'll, I'll take a, a show of hands. I'll say, all right, how many people want to take the penny? How many people want to take the million dollars? And most people are kind of following along and they say, well, I think I want the penny. I said, all right, well, up you from a million to two million. Does that change anyone's thinking? And usually there's a, there's a little bit of hmm, maybe, but I think I'm stick with the penny. I say, how about five million? And now people's minds start working, right? And they're like, okay, what, what is that penny that doubles 
right? There's a 100% return compounded for 30 periods, 30 days in this case. And in the end, I, I reveal that the penny would be worth $10.7 million at the end of that period of time. It's so wild to me. It's, it's crazy, right? I, I threw this out of my, my eight-year-old last night and... And I love the the last part of it. They'll talk about the last week or the last couple of days. That's the best well, part. And, and, and right. And so that's that's the amazing thing is it's it's the not so obvious power of compound returns. Because up until the 27th day, you were better off taking the million dollars. But from the 28th to the 30th period is when it goes from 700,000 to 10.7 million. And so there was a book, uh, Morgan Housel wrote this great book. Uh, the psychology of money. And he talks about that the vast, vast majority of Warren Buffett's wealth has been created um, after the age of, of 65, I think is what he said. I mean, and, and, and he just showed the numbers or the, or the, or what the wealth of, of Renaissance technologies would have been if, if only for more years, longer runway at those incredible rates of return. And it's those, those end periods where you start to just see tremendous, tremendous, uh, multiplication impacts. And, and so it's, it's something that we just constantly have to think about, remind ourselves. Um, and everything we do is focused on these compound annual growth rates. So if you were to open up our, our financial models for our businesses, there's nothing about quarters. We're not predicting earnings per share to the penny. We're thinking in terms of ranges over five and 10 year periods of time. And even five and 10 years uh, would be a relatively short holding period for us. So I think uh, for the mutual fund, the last few years, our, our average annual turnover has been three or four or 5%, which obviously implies, you know, decade average holding periods, uh, decades. But that's, that's the mindset and that's the way we approach everything. And so the advantage that gives us as investors, we talk about the competitive advantages of our businesses. Well, the competitive advantage that we have as investors is, is that our time horizon is so much different than what most people are thinking in terms of. And so when we're talking with a management team, the conversation is just very different than what they're used to. And we're, we're often told, wow, this was, this was quite refreshing because what we're asking them about are the, the, the dynamics of their business that will hold for years, and, and what are those com those durable competitive advantages, and how will those evolve over time? And they love talking about that because that's what they're thinking about. They don't want to really tell you what amortization is going to be, you know, over the next three quarters or something like that. And so we were able to build these great relationships with our managers, and it's we describe it as a partnership between us and them, and it's a partnership between our clients and us as well. Uh, because unless people are willing to give us their capital and uh, give us the time to, to achieve some of those compound returns, it doesn't work either. So it's, it's, it's a partnership on both sides. The analog would be how family offices have this multi-generational time horizon and they can really outperform the market because a lot of these groups are looking, I mean, quarter to quarter is, oh, you know, that's ancient history now. It's, it's all about kind of what you've done today. And I think this whole GameStop adventure has demonstrated the power both on the creativity side and the destructive side of that really near-term thinking. And, and when the, you know, the tide washed away, it was the high frequency guys that made the most money on all those deals because they were taking that friction cost and all the way to the bank.
So kudos to you for, for thinking that way and not just being beholden quarter to quarter, very much a powerful way to, to think about investing. But obviously there are times when even a three four or 4% turnover is still turnover. And mm-hmm. at some point you've got to let a name go. Mm-hmm. What are the guideposts you use to make those type of decisions? So it, it goes back to the criteria for selecting uh, the businesses in the first place. So it's, it's about the business, the management, or the reinvestment. And so if sometimes we get the initial evaluation wrong, and, and so that's, that's a case where as we come to appreciate that there was um, an error in our original hypothesis, we can you know, make a change in direction. That's easier than if you've had a business in the portfolio for a number of years, and for whatever reason, you believe that the moat around that business, for whatever reason, are, is narrowing. It's becoming shallower. There's some new threat, whether technology or regulatory or, or competition, that's, that's impacting um, or you think will impact the, the rates of return over time. Uh, the other thing that can happen is, and it, this, is, this happens all the time, and it's really tricky, is you know, managers the average CEO isn't around for our, the length of our holding period, which means for most of the businesses in our portfolio, we're either in the second or third iteration of management. And every time there's a change, uh, there's a period of coming to, you know, getting to know, because it's a very iterative process of, of building trust and, and a relationship with, with the management teams. And it can be challenging when, someone you know well and trust and have built that relationship retires and somebody new comes along and they're different. They might be better in some ways, uh, but they're different. And that difference, you know, requires us to go through that, that sort of iterative dating process all over again. And we kind of have to re-underwrite the marriage. And I can tell you that, that, that one of the biggest mistakes that I ever made as an investor was selling Ross stores a number of years ago. And the reason why we did that was Michael Belmuth, who we had known really well, he'd run the business for decades, uh, retired. And his successor was somebody who we didn't know. Uh, we had very little exposure to her, none actually. Uh, she's very private. There were no videos on YouTube you could watch for interviews. Uh, she hadn't been part of the conference calls and really wasn't very available to the investing community. And we were uncomfortable about that. And so we moved on. And she has turned out to do a, an exceptional job running that business. And we missed out on a lot of compounding. And, and, and it's it's a double whammy because you've paid taxes. So you're now starting, your clients are starting at a lower base and maybe not growing at that same rate that, that, that Ross was able to. And so those are really difficult. And then, but at the same time, there were businesses um, in a similar industry where there was a change in management and we sold because of that. And it turned out to be the right decision. It's a challenge for sure. And then the last piece would be the reinvestment runway. And you see this a lot where businesses uh, really cannot reinvest the free cash flow that they're generating uh, at the same rates of return that they're generating on, on, on past investments. And so they turn to dividends or uh, share repurchases. And uh, that overall is a less efficient process for compounding. Um, and, 
at a certain point that that may be problematic and might cause us to sell. So how do we as as investors and market participants block out this, I think the term you used in your paper is cacophony of noise, mm-hmm. distractions. How can we train ourselves to 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 be better <laughs> disciplined to hold long term, have high conviction, and to, you know, be able to hold on during maybe periods of volatility or a downturn? So the, the, the best thing you can do, in, in my experience, is simplify everything. So I think if you, again, it, it all comes back to a concentrated portfolio uh, with long-term holding periods, which allows for deep understanding, hopefully, of the businesses in which you are invested. And if you achieve deep understanding, you can begin to simplify. And what I mean by that is you've, you've accumulated all this knowledge about the business. You know all the drivers, you know all the risk factors, and your mind is filled with all these details. And you need to start not forgetting them, but sort of pushing them aside and distill it down to a sentence or two, if you can. Uh, and we call that the essence. So if you can distill it down to that essence, or maybe it's a paragraph, or maybe it's two paragraphs, but that is, uh, to the best of your ability, the most streamlined explanation for what makes that an exceptional business. And then use that every time there's some new development and bring it back to that simplified idea. And if it profoundly changes what you've written down, then you know it's really something important and it's something that's worth your attention. If it sort of clangs off of your simplified explanation is irrelevant, it doesn't affect it, then you know it's noise. And so virtually every single quarterly earnings call is going to be you know, on the spectrum of irrelevant uh, because they're small developments. They might add to or supplement your understanding a little bit. And, and I'm not saying we don't pay attention, we do. Um, there's always something new to learn, but you always bring it back to that simplified idea, that essence. I think simple is easier to just stay the course with than complex. You know, there's, there's this idea that the thicker the investment file, uh, the worse the return. You know, the simpler ideas tend to do better over time. And I, and I do believe in that. Simplicity to me is one of my sort of guiding principles. And I think it, it really does help. Are you worried about the advent of the Robin Hoods of the world and these blocks of retail traders on Reddit? Does it concern you that they are now smaller than we probably think, but they are market participants? You know, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't concern me as an investor. I, it, I don't think you know, we have, there, there are so many market participants and I think it, it's always changing and we'll continue to adapt to that. And, uh, you know, generally other people's behaviors are the things that create opportunities. There's, there's sort of both sides of it. There are just very few people that think about the world in, in the way that we do. And we're very thankful for that because that, that does create opportunity. The thing that concerns me a little bit about it, and it's, it's this is a little bit more high-minded, so it's maybe you know above my pay grade, is at least 
with some of the, the, the folks who I've heard from on this, and it's amazing. I have never had so many people in my personal life asking me questions about what I do for a living as I have in the last two weeks or three weeks with what's going on with GameStop and, and Robinhood trading. And the thing that concerns me a little bit about it is that very little about what's happening relates back to the fundamentals of the business that they're buying and selling shares of. There isn't this idea that when you buy a share of, of one of these companies that you're an owner. For however short period of time, you are a fractional owner of that business. And so the price that you're paying has to relate back to the owner's earnings available to you um, as a fractional owner of that business. And so instead, what, what, what the focus is on is, is the short-term dynamics of supply and demand, which can be very dramatic. When you have huge short positions and you have squeezes and there's, there's demand from option strategies, I mean, it, it, it's, it's very dynamic. I get that. And it's compelling and it may be exciting, um, but it's gambling in, in a way. And, and, I don't, and I think you just have to, if, if a whole generation, I, I'm a millennial, so if a whole generation of future investors are exposed to the market for the first time in a way that's, that makes them think about it in terms of gambling, I, I don't think that's good for, for savings and long-term investment plans. I think it, it could make folks cynical. And, and so that, that, that would be the reason I would be more concerned about it than how it might impact my business or my day-to-day my day -day investment decisions. Yeah, there's this great... I'm sure you know it, the Peter Lynch anecdote of the you know phases of a stock market bubble and phase one, he says he's a mutual fund manager and everyone ignores him. They go talk to the dentist by phase four, the dentist is giving Peter advice about what to buy. And that's, that's when you know where you are there. So exactly right. I think we learn a lot from these type of stories. Um, so let's transition to a little bit of a, some quick hitting questions as we wrap up here. Sure. We're in February of, of 2021. Biden administration is moving towards what seems to be a big stimulus package. The vaccine rollout, although slow, is seemingly helping us turn the corner here. Stock market's been on a wild ride really the last 12 months, hitting all-time highs. And there's obviously the, the GameStop drama. Let's talk about kind of the rest of the calendar year. So call it nine months. Are you right. bullish or bearish overall? I'm going to disappoint you uh, because the way I, I answer the question is, is going to be uh, very bottoms up. And, and so there are pockets of opportunity. There are a lot fewer of those today than there were last March, obviously. It, it's, it's an interesting thing to observe that over the past year, call it, let's say 15 months, I think that we as investors have been tested three different times in three different ways. Late 2019, uh, we were in a situation where we thought we saw some higher valuations across the board. And there was a, uh, a certain level of discipline and restraint that was required. Uh, and for us, we were, we were seeing some inflows during that period of time, some pretty meaningful inflows. And uh, that meant a lot of those dollars were remaining in, in cash. And there was, you know, there were some clients who were saying, look, why aren't you putting that money to work? That was test number one. Test number two was obviously what happened in, in March and April. And 
for us. Uh, fortunately, the way that we approach all of our businesses is, is we have uh, specific buy price targets. We have no sell price targets, as we talked about, but we have very specific buy price targets for every business that we own and every business that we like to own. And so what happened in March was all of those buy price targets went from being 20, 30, 40% below current market prices to all of a sudden they were actionable. The market prices were below our buy prices. And that's not to say that it was easy at that point to pull the trigger, but at least we had done the work ahead of time. And so the only decision we had to make was whether to pull the trigger, not where to pull the trigger. And I think, and we put a lot of capital to work during that period of time. And I think, you know, we're really happy with the way that went. And that was test number two. And now test number three is the pendulum has swung back in a, in a very powerful way. And there are some, you know, really concerning uh, pockets of exuberance out there. I think the, the activity in the SPACs are indicative of, of where we are today. Uh, there are some pretty spectacular valuations on uh, some enterprise software businesses in particular, um, unprofitable businesses. The ways that people are thinking about uh, profitability and how to value companies are changing. You know, gone are the days of, of any sort of price to an earnings based metric. And now it's all based on prices to revenues or prices to addressable markets. You know, it, 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 as you get further and further away from actual owners' earnings, which is how we started the conversation, um, I think it becomes more tenuous and, and there's more cause for concern and caution. And, and so that's test number three. And I think we're in the midst of test number three right now. And so we're pretty cautious. You know, I think the idea is that they're going to run the economy pretty hot. There are certain risks associated with that that we have to be careful of. Uh, there's a tail risk out there, you know, relating to inflation, maybe. I mean, stuff like that that we're not thinking about on a daily basis and maybe taking for granted could, could potentially be, you know, down the road, meaningful causes for concern. And so that, that's kind of the way we're thinking about it. Uh, but it all really does start from a bottoms up point of view. We've got, you know, 20 something names in the portfolio, maybe another 10 or 12 that we'd like to own at some point. And we're watching those very closely and, and waiting for opportunities. And we've had a couple shots to put some money to work here in the last few months. Um, but, but it's all bottoms up. I wouldn't have expected any different response from you, so that's fine. With the caveat that I'm not asking you for recommendations or specific names, and this is purely your opinion as, as you, Chris, possibly, um, what are your best ideas right now, be it industry, sector, investment, opportunity? I know it's all valuation pricing dependent, but what do you think? One way of thinking about what we do is identifying quality. And then once you've identified quality, you have to bring to bear some discipline. And so let's just move the discipline off, which is sort of, I think, the question and just talking about quality and where do I see quality? And, one, and, and so over time, you know, I, I'm probably late to the show on this is I, I've, gotten, uh, I've, I've gotten more appreciation over, and over, uh, over time about the, the quality of, of certain technology businesses, whether they be software or platforms. And 
we've been working really hard over the last couple of years to get up to speed, to build frameworks, to evaluate large numbers of these businesses. There are a ton of them that are publicly traded, and there are a lot more that are coming uh, public every day. And I think these can be really, really interesting businesses. Uh, the dynamics are very different than the, the old world traditional businesses that we're so used to. The, the, the ability for some of these technology companies to scale, given the low marginal costs of expanding, are just blow out of the water some of those older traditional businesses. Um, the, they get better with size, which is really interesting. So the, the, the law of large numbers is inverted for a lot of these businesses. As network effects get stronger, they, they get stronger with size. But on the, on the flip side, the barriers to entry for new competitors to these businesses are lower than they've ever been before. And so you, at the very same time, have maybe higher highs, but then more vulnerability. And that just means that for me as a stock picker, you know, this is, this is, this is nirvana because theoretically I can add real value. I, I think that the, the businesses that are going to be successful and people look at the fangs and say, you know, that's what success looks like. And there's this whole next generation of potential fangs out there, right? Those, those potential fangs, the winners among that group, there's almost no price that you can pay that's too high, you could argue, uh, if they can really scale to that degree. The problem is that I think most of those businesses are being priced today as if they're going to be that successful. And I don't think they'll all be that successful because of those, that, that, that dynamic where they, there are uh, lower barriers to, to future competition. Uh, the same things that are allowing them to grow are the things that are going to allow the really smart, you know, college dropout in their garage to, to build something in a short period of time with some venture funding that is a better mousetrap and completely disrupts their business, even though they're focused on disrupting somebody else's business. And so I'm fascinated by this. I think there's, there's, there's so much to learn. The, the, the learning curve is steep. That's what makes it really interesting and fun. Fortunately, like I keep going back to this, we have the time and space to think about these things and really get deep focus on them and get really deep on the, those ideas. But in terms of, of good ponds to fish in, I would, I would say those are, those are good places to start. Well, Chris, this has been terrific. I'm going to be mindful of your time. Um, so thank you for carving out 45 minutes plus on a, on a Friday in the middle of a probably a snowstorm or something. I'm not sure what's <laughs> going on in Virginia, but this has been terrific. I love hearing about the way that you think about investing and the culture that you've been able to implement in your firm. And congratulations on all of your success and your recent uh, uplift into a, a managerial position at the firm. I think we'll all be watching. And if folks want to learn more about Acre or yourself, uh, what's the best way for them to connect with you and the firm? Uh, they can go to acrecapital.com. Um, that's, that's probably the, the best place to start. And we have uh, white papers. The, the Art of Not Selling is there, um, as well as a couple other white papers that my partners have written. Uh, so you can check those out. And there are, uh, there's a, there are biographies of, of our, our great team, uh, you know, that I could, I could spend 45 minutes just telling you about how awesome our team is, and you can learn a little bit more about those people there. 
And uh, I think there are some probably some links to reach out directly to us if folks are interested in what they see. Well, any firm that puts Deskac people in leadership positions clearly has their ducks in a row. So we can That's all great. get on board with that. But Chris, thanks so much for finding the time. Awesome. We should probably do a part two in six or nine months and kind of update everyone on what you're seeing in the marketplace if you've added names or dropped names. And um, I very much encourage people to go to the website. They have some really cool research papers, thought papers. And the one in particular that, that Chris penned, The Art of Not Selling, particularly in today's environment, extremely powerful and uh, timely. So Chris, thank you again for the time and look forward to staying and in touch. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Okay, take, take care. care. Thank you for joining the conversation on Colloquium. If you enjoyed what you heard in this episode, please like, rate, or leave us a review. And stay tuned for our next episode coming soon. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 